0: Okay, so we're in prep. Perry, you spent the weekend at some frou-frou, like, everybody's open and accepting, I don't know, like, retreat thing over the weekend, and you said they operate on Vibes, and then Alan, I texted you this morning uh, to see if you wanted coffee, and what was your response? No, at gym. Yeah, and... What I want both of you to know is I don't need that kind of negativity in my life. <laughs> I'm Ace Callwood.
1: <laughs> and I'm Alan Dow.
0: And this is Envoy Recorded Radio. Three, two, okay. Um, actually, be- before we like jump into content, um, we we have not dedicated an episode in quite some time. And I want to dedicate an episode to your cat, oh. Alan. Your cat passed away this weekend. He did. Is that right?
1: Uh, Friday. Yeah, uh, He was... Louis, he was 14, he'd been sick for a while, but mm. Friday morning sort of got up and knew it was the day, so thank you, I appreciate 14,
0: that. 14, yeah, absolutely. So that 14 years, does that predate one of your kids? Or about, that, about that age, yeah?
1: So... One, one is 16, the other one is 14. He was born about a month before the, wow. the second kid. He was actually my brother-in-law's cat for eight years, was okay. a wonderful part of their family, and then became our cat for the last six years. But, I mean, he was you know he was the first pet that was really part of our family.
0: Oh, so. oh I'm so sorry to hear that. Oh. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Pets as, pets as family members. Um, I'm going to uh, jump into maybe the, the first piece, which is kind of – Kind of related, millennials and subsequent generations are having fewer kids and having kids later. And I'm finding that pets have kind of supplanted where kids might have fit in the family dynamic. And so the the term uh, pet mom or pet dad, how do you feel about that?
1: Yeah, well it's, it's interesting. So um, we have a whole bunch of cousins that are in my kids' generation and the oldest one think is 29 now and he's been with his longtime girlfriend for seven eight years now and so we're all sort of like waiting like okay when does like marriage and yeah. first grandkid for the that generation and what happen? and they've had a number of dogs and are pet mom and dads and great pet owners but they've not sort of taken that next step and we know we know it's different in the generation but <laughs> we're also like you know this is sort of Seems like where life should be going. Yeah. So that
0: that's fascinating because that generational piece and then there's just the cost of the cost of living, I suppose, right? I mean, how am I supposed to afford a wedding if I'm buying High-end, premium, like real people filet mignon for my dog. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's tough. I'm not sure. And and of course, you like layer in avocado toast on top of that, and the iced coffee every morning. And I I can't afford anything. You know, it's that for me. Is it's one of the drivers and then there's global warming and like all of the things happening in the world and you know the balance of do I have a pet or do I have a kid and do I get married and like move into to that realm I I understand the math and I'm not sure it maths in the way it used to even 15 20 years ago
1: yeah I mean people talk a lot about the economics of it yeah and and so, how much of it do you think is the economic versus sort of like a cultural life satisfaction kind of thing? Mm. Because I, I I don't know the answer to that. I I I don't
0: know. I I would imagine it's a blend of both. I mean, yeah, it's. One could argue it's expensive to to head that route, and one could also argue there's safety in numbers in, in a sense, you know? <laughs> like with a partner or a spouse or a significant other, you can split the cost of living. And so I'm not sure the economic piece bears all the way out, mm-hmm. but enjoyment, like I think societally we're recalibrating what partnership means and how to be in relationships and uh, therapy and doing self work and having this—I uh, don't know—an existential exploration every day—and mm-hmm. there are pros and cons to that. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think uh, I, I saw a note from you about the military, mm-hmm. um, and let me make sure I've got this this uh, this note right.
1: Well, so, so yeah. So it was an article in the Military Times. Yeah. that. We are being more open about our health problems, particularly mental health problems. Yeah, and because of that, military recruitment is down because fewer people sort of qualify, qualify. For, right. for being in the military. And and I think you know what what you're pointing to is this bigger issue of we are much more uh, open about things and also willing to sort of label things. Mm-hmm. And I see that as a big part of this idea of talking about the loneliness ep- epidemic, mm-hmm. that you know there's been a recent Surgeon General's report about this. I think maybe we mentioned that here at one point. Um, and as I've been thinking about this and trying to sort of trace some, about some of this back for the, the work that I do as a, as a doctor and somebody who thinks about public health, it's pretty clear that some of the aspects of loneliness may not actually be more now. It's just that we think about it differently. Mm. Um, and... So to give you an example, so the um, the VCU common book, it's this book called CQ. It's a graphic novel um, for Christian Radke. This is the book that all the incoming freshmen are supposed okay. to read before. And it's, it's I was a great...
0: wondering if you brought me a book. You're like, hey, Ace, you should read every now and then.
1: Yeah, yeah well, except I ripped the cover here, but you can see it. Okay. Yeah, but it's, it's a 350-page graphic novel, quick read. You can go through it in probably two hours, Be- beautiful pictures and whatnot. But she makes the point in here that when our – Parent, my parents were growing up. Um, there was this idea of men should be like the the lone cowboy. If you mm-hmm. want to say the marble man, you the can say man. that. Yeah. Yeah. And this idea of like loneliness and solitude and like independence was was sort of valorized. And she says the the female example was the princess in the tower, mm-hmm. but still lonely Waiting to be rescued. Exactly. But yeah. yeah. But still, still rescued. And and this idea of loneliness was sort of valorized. And now we're like, okay, well, that shifted in saying, okay, loneliness is a problem. Maybe being alone is a problem, and we need to try to sort of fix that. And so now we're like, hey, we're all lonely. Whereas I don't think my my parents would have admitted to being lonely. I think they sort of saw that as where they should be. Hmm. <laughs>
0: yeah. Because uh, we did glamorize that, the Marlboro Man, the Cowboy, the, the Lone Ranger. And like we – we disregard that Tonto existed, right? And it was John Henry and Paul Bunyan and go down the list even to, you know, Thoreau, uh, you know, like his Walden moment, as Mm -hmm. we talk about, was just going off into solitude and being. And, you know, I think there's two sides to that. Loneliness is a function of not having connection with folks. Problematic, I'd Mm -hmm. I'd say. I mean, that's the Mm -hmm. epidemic we're talking about. Um, But also in an era where we are hyper-connected and we've got a mini computer in our hand and can have access to everything, there is probably some similar value in being grounded and being able to be alone. Yeah, uh, One of my best friends in the world cannot have a meal by himself. Mm-hmm. Like, has has never been able to. We, we grew up together, went to college together. We've known each other a long time and I'm not sure I've ever seen that like it wasn't a ring to me of, hey, I haven't eaten dinner. Do you want to go give, get a bite? Uh, in the car, it's always a call. And like being able to sit by oneself is uh, I think a lost skill, maybe an art. I'm not sure what mm-hmm. – a skill perhaps. I think it could be, can be taught and acclimated to. Uh, but yeah, that doesn't exist in the same way either, I don't think.
1: Yeah, yeah. Scott and I have been kicking around an idea of talking about things that – we want to teach our kids, but are not getting taught in some, some other way. And I think one of the things that we've, we've put on our list is how do you be alone, but don't feel lonely? And I don't think I learned that until I was traveling a lot for work. And you just, you have these alone moments and, and maybe I mean, you can empathize, I'm sure. Um, and you have to learn to eat a meal by yourself and, and maybe sometimes entertain yourself. It's like, oh, I'm in a new city. I'm going to you know walk around and Go to the museum or go to the, you know, shopping district and just kinda, you know, yeah. be alone but also enjoy that. Yeah.
0: I I'm I'm gonna circle back on that, but I, I wanna make a, a note. I'm proud of us because we made it to about seven minutes without mentioning the S word which is Scott, <laughs> um, who is not here this week, and you are arguably the better and uh, a significantly better quaffed version of Scott, who is, I think, for the first time in maybe ever on holiday right now with his kids. So he's he's gone home to see high school friends, and I don't know, he's going to some beach town in the UK, um, which... The UK is only but so big. I think it's all a beach town, in yeah. my opinion. But yeah. you know, uh, so Scott's not here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm proud of him for not being here. I'm proud of us for not talking about him. This is great. Everybody's winning right now.
1: Can we can we talk about him for a, a second though? Yeah, let's do. So this was fascinating to me that he was going back to where he was from to see high school friends and to do like Beach Town stuff because. So, so, I grew up in, in Memphis, Tennessee, and then moved I'm to. I'm not sure I knew that. Yeah, and then moved to Delaware for high school. And I would never think of, like, oh, you know what I'm going to do for vacation yeah. is go home. And I wouldn't even know how to. I mean, I, I guess a few of them I'm Facebook friends with, so I could find a few folks. Yeah. But, it, you know, you're a little bit more local, I think, because di- didn't you grow up in the um, peninsula area?
0: Military brat, but yeah, I finished yeah. like high school in Chesapeake. So, yeah. an hour and yeah. a half south. Yeah. So,
1: So, do you feel like you could go home again?
0: Um, I mean, if one has been to Western Branch, Virginia, I'm not sure. Can, yes, should, questionable. Um, but it, no, I mean, I so I've got a group of high school buddies, there are maybe eight or nine of us, and we mm-hmm. all, I'm probably the most removed, mm-hmm. which is, I think, hard as a function of profession. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm travel a ton. Uh, when I was doing the startup thing, you know, you were just head down grinding. And I found that I lost some of those friends as a function of uh, their perception of my importance mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then my perception of uh, my obligations mm-hmm. and and kind of mm-hmm. work requirements. Um, and so, yeah, you you recalibrate a bit, but there's still a really core group that I can go Mm-hmm. see and bachelor parties are still happening, etc. Yeah. Um, I'd also back to being connected. I'd imagine that's a function of like you know where everybody is mm-hmm. because of Facebook or Instagram or probably as far back as MySpace. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can, we, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Back in the day, um, you can still find people. Military brat moving. I didn't keep up with. It was a two-year relationship, eighteen months of like a deep friendship. We yeah. were best friends. We'd see each other every day, and then you'd move. Yeah, and there was no follow up. There was like your parents had yeah. their phone number or kept in touch, but you didn't keep up. And so I wonder if generationally there's some of that. If you didn't stay where you're from, it's you'd have to look somebody up and find them on the internet now, mm-hmm. and maybe you get them. Mm-hmm. A generic name, you're certainly mm-hmm. not going to find them, you know. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I I wonder if there's a, a function of how we stay connected now, mm-hmm. and whether that's good.
1: Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I do. I, to me, it would be a little creepy to look up a, a friend from mm-hmm. elementary school and say, "Hey, what are you doing?" I, <laughs> Who I, found, I found you <laughs> on the internet. <laughs> yeah. So you you talk about the
0: circles of friendship, uh, yeah. or circles of. Uh, connections, I guess, and mm-hmm. uh, you, you might define it differently, but there's kind of the core of your like really tight, yeah. really good friends, and then uh, acquaintances, and I, I think you said something like we can keep up with 50 people in our extended, is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, well, it, so so it's, it's, it's actually smaller, it's 20 is probably, okay. people that we can sort of nurture continuing, and again, it, it, yeah. it varies by the person, and some people are better at this than, than others, but yeah. really, there's 20 folks that you have Sort of consistent connection with, and then five or less that are really true friends, where mm-hmm. you have some sort of vulnerability with. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, if you're going to invite someone into that circle, it takes time. Yeah. And if you're going to disinvite from that from that circle, you you know, you might want to be intentional about it because maybe someone who has a lot of value in terms of what they bring to your life.
0: Yeah. I. Uh, the the dis Have you ever disinvited somebody from your circle?
1: Yes. <laughs> uh, really? It, okay. Yeah, right. yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's a
0: heavy, heavy question that they're you on the fly, but I'm thinking of a person who has just kinda fallen out of my life, and as I'm thinking about it, they're probably wondering why, mm-hmm. and it just it didn't suit me, and I'm not sure I had the intentional conversation in the way that I probably could have. I've never considered that one might actively disinvite somebody from their circle.
1: Well, so, so in my case, and, and it, I've, there's been a few people, but I've, I've agonized over it, mm-hmm. and it's just, you, you realize that they're taking more from you mm-hmm. than you're getting back from the relationship, and substantially more. I mean, yeah. those things, you know, they ebb and flow some with, with what you get, what you give. Yeah. But um, just people that have a lot of drama in their lives, and it's like, okay, I, I keep getting yeah sucked into your drama, and i busy guy, you know, uh-huh. job, life, family, and it's like, okay, I, I can't. Be that
0: for you. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's heart. That is, I'm going to sit with that one. Um, I've got a couple couple things swirling.
1: Yeah. Well, Uh, and and I'll say, I was probably a little older than you are now when mm -hmm. I first did it. Really? And it wasn't something I thought about in my 20s, for sure, because it was like, you know, oh, we can just sort of, like, keep going and keep rolling, and, and there's always, but when you, kids, to your yeah. point about, you know, where you spend your time, yeah. kids, pets, f- friends, I mean, that, that was a big part of it.
0: Yeah, that's, that's huge, and so, so I, I was asking about the number, particularly because of how we're connected today. I would imagine in an era pre pre-social media, not even pre-internet necessarily, pre-social media, we cycled through iterations of circles, differently than we do today right like i i feel like my circle is larger as a function of um those connections that are kind of residual almost connections like because I'm connected with that person on Instagram and I see their story every day, Mm -hmm. we haven't actually disconnected. Mm -hmm. They're always still just there a little bit in a way that if I had moved to a new profession, moved into a new job, moved to another town, I wouldn't have kept that connective tissue in the same way. I'd have probably kept one or two people that I still ring up because we were deep, deep friends and they were probably my core circle in that point in my life. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. now we don't we don't refresh or reset, I feel like. Back mm-hmm. to kind of disinviting people. It it feels like we've got uh, – we are constantly accumulating connections, but we're never curating or kind of resetting on that mm-hmm. because we can stay so hyperconnected. Mm-hmm. I can be across the world and still dialed into what's going on in a person's life, mm-hmm. even if we don't talk actively. And so we've got these like – Shadow connections now, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that I, I I wonder what the implications on like our psyche and our ability to manage all of that, and if anybody's like me just feeling wildly overwhelmed with all of the people that I think we're still good friends, but we don't connect. Yeah, but I see them, and it, we just never got separation.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, to me, the the sort of parallel thing to that is when you go to someone's town and you're like, haven't seen you in five years. Let's get together and and have a drink or have a dinner or wh- yeah. whatever, and those can be great times, and it may even be someone that you don't want to see yeah. every day. But just seeing you once every five years, great conversation, reminisce, how so-and-so, you know, what's going on, and, and you have a great time. I, you know, it it was, I, I don't spend a lot of time on social media, and I, I don't think a lot about it, Yeah. but um, when I posted about my cat on Friday that he had passed away, mm-hmm. I was surprised at how quickly people posted back. Really? And, you know, I, I'm not the social media yeah. savant that you are. No. That's a word. Well, uh, but, you, but you are. You're very good at it. Um, and and so, you know, usually if I post something and I get, you know, 20 or 30 interactions, it's like, that, that's a lot for me. Yeah. But, you there know, there's like 100 people that, you know, yeah. you know, clicked on things and posted nice little comments and whatnot, and a few sent me text messages and, and whatnot. And, you know, it, it is amazing to sort of see, like, wow, people are actually out there Paying attention to what's mm. going on, if, if particularly if the algorithm serves it up to them, and yeah. I, I guess cats dying is one of the things the algorithm likes to serve up. So. Yeah, the, the <laughs> pros and cons. <laughs> pros, to con, right? pros and cons. <laughs> well, it, it was yeah. mostly pro. I mean, I appreciated it. Pro, pros
0: on the feeling supported. Cons on the like we know that that is where engagement happens. And mm-hmm. for the big things, the traumatic things that happen yeah. in the world, it's like let's let's yeah. put that there. We can perhaps trauma bond over it. And, yeah. And that's that, yeah, that's yeah. tough. Um, hmm. There's a lot in there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that.
0: <laughs> no, no, this is this is life. This is real. Um, you two, not even me. I, I was like here diligently working on my Monday morning mm-hmm. and you two are just shooting the shit. Um, conferences. We're talking about <laughs> conferences. Are conferences actually for learning?
1: So, um, in part, okay. I think I think, um, well. So, uh, back round for the audience. So I, I've thought a lot about educational events and what they're about, and I think you're really doing two things. One, you're you're delivering content, mm-hmm. and we spend a lot of time thinking about the content. But second, you're you're building a community. And you're helping people feel part of that community, which then help, sort of helps shape their identity.
0: Mm-hmm. And it helps shape the attendees' identity yeah. or the, the conference itself. Uh, both. Okay. Both.
1: I think those things are, are synergistic, and yeah. then you're sort of you build things. And so if if you're an attendee, you're hopefully adding to that community, or maybe you're taking away. But you're but you're sort of you know hopefully becoming part of that. And then the the community is then some sum of all of those parts coming coming together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's interesting because you know having seen you speak. Um, I I know that you get people engaged and interested in the ideas. And so the ideas that you're presenting in that, you know, 45 minutes or an hour are, mm-hmm. are important. But also then there's all these things that sort of spiral out of that. Mm-hmm. And I see conversations with you, but then I also see people that are having conversations about you and about things that you've said.
0: What? And so you have
1: this sort of ripple kind of thing that happens because, you know, you, you're very good at, at what you do. And, um, you know, that, that's sort of part of that.
0: Yeah, yeah, and for what it is worth, I have seen the same having watched you speak, and which is newer for me. Um, I, I know that you speak, and, you know, we haven't lived in the same industry, right? Mm. And so you go do medical conferences, et cetera, mm. and, and education conferences, and I never really did that in my stint in academia. Um, and so now that our worlds have converged a bit, I've actually gotten to see you speak. Mm. And that has been... We have very different styles, Um, I I think, in a very good way. Yours lends itself to who you are and how you operate in the world.
1: (laughs) Professorial. (laughs) Exactly.
0: Yeah, no, like you teach in a way that is accessible, and I think my style is conversation to – maybe land some points that somebody can take away. And so it's yeah. just different approaches to the same outcome, which is something tangible for an audience to do something with. Yeah. And so the, like this conference thing for me is has always been fascinating because on one hand it feels like uh, a venue by which I can go speak and then that can go on my resume so I can go speak at other mm-hmm. places, right? It's mm-hmm. the economic vehicle of, mm-hmm. of being a speaker. And then there are some that are purely, I'm sharing information with peers of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and that feels like the kind of academic conference. And well, I'll, I'll ask you if that's like, is an academic conference one where I got invited to speak and now I can say I spoke at this academic conference and so that's good for my publishing and research, et cetera? Uh, or is it, hey, I, I have this knowledge that peers in the industry might benefit from? And is is, is it a little bit of both, I'd imagine?
1: It's a little bit of both, yeah, and there is a, a little bit of a boondoggle mm. aspect too, where you know, oh we want to invite you to come pay to come to our conference, and so yeah. you'll, you'll speak, but you also pay the 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 fee you know to to come to it um, so um I just think it, those things work on a lot of levels, mm-hmm. and it actually um I think there's a corollary to remote work. are you I forget are you someone who is is completely for remote work or are you for some in-person time together? um I am or it depends?
0: It depends. I'm not opposed to remote work, yeah, but yeah. I I very much, I am adamant about being able to connect with people. And yeah. that that is, I think, a frequency dictated and predicated on the work that one does and how they need to do that and the size of team. Uh, but yeah, I think we need to be in person at times. It doesn't have to be all the time.
1: Yeah. Okay. And I and I, I feel similarly in, the, in that I think there's something about those in-person interactions that is beyond just the Content conveyance, which you can do over Zoom or even emails or you know whatever mm-hmm. whatever platform you're going to use. Um, but I think there is that socialization that happens yeah. when you have people in a in a workplace together and there's a little casual conversation about something else. So Perry and I talking about conferences before we got started. I mean, it was just a nice conversation to sort of you know learn about him and you know hear what he does and he was maybe hearing something about me. Hey Perry. Hey Perry. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Why don't, why don't you have a microphone yet? You can't answer that question because you don't have a microphone.
1: Oh, he just did. Didn't you hear him? That's not fair. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he's just mouthing things in the corner. I don't think he's actually saying anything.
1: Well, it, it, the thing about Perry is he has that unusually high-pitched voice.
0: That it, It's uh, squeaky almost. Yeah, it's like a, a porky kind pig kind of. Kinda, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you definitely wouldn't want to hear him on a microphone. Yeah. He, you have a face for TV, though. I'll tell you. There's a yeah. beautiful man in the corner. Yeah, it's
1: quite – kind of like Denzel. It's kind of – A young Denzel. Denzel. Yeah. Yeah. No, – yeah. yeah.
0: He'll take it. I, I thought you were going to say I get that often, which would probably <laughs> also be true. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, we're, I, I was going to go to reverse innovations, but I don't know if this will be a reverse innovation at all. Uh, QR menus, missed opportunity. Mm. Talk to me.
1: Yeah. Well, so um, – I, I saw when these QR menus started to come out at, at restaurants with the pandemic. I was like, yeah. "This is great," mm-hmm. because you could then go to a web page that would actually show you videos about the food, and maybe the chef tells you about it and why he he's excited, she, he or she's excited about this particular thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you could you could do links that would talk to you about some of the ingredients and where they're from. You can sort of start to see how you might build a menu that had all these sort of layers, and maybe some places are doing this. Yeah. Um, but I've been sort of sad to see them go away because hmm. I feel like you could have a much more dynamic experience, and I am surprised that some of the bigger chain kind of places haven't yeah. really jumped on this because you could you could produce something that you could then you know distribute across you know thousands of, of locations to to you know get get that those ideas out there. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna like
0: completely one thousand percent disagree with you. Okay. Yeah. No, I. We are at Reverse Innovation. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's where we are now. Um, we went to QR codes. And for what it's worth, QR codes, like the pandemic was the best thing for mm-hmm. QR codes. Mm-hmm. Right, it, it, They had existed for five or six years prior, mm-hmm. I want to say, somewhere in there. Um, and then nobody used them and they were supposed to be this like awesome thing and they kind of fizzled out. And then when we couldn't touch physical menus or weren't supposed to, QR codes became... That, like, it was their moment. And that was a beautiful thing to watch a piece of technology that should have gone, didn't go, finally went. That was really cool. But I feel like this is the community episode. I'm mm-hmm. right, talking about mm-hmm. conferences and how we connect and Fru Fru retreat weekends in Charlottesville for Perry, uh, so on, and, and uh, people rallying around your cat and, you know, just like that. Those pieces are cool. Breaking bread for me is, I think, one of the most critical pieces of community. Mm -hmm. And if we were to optimize QR code, I agree, the opportunity is there. Mm -hmm. I don't think we should take it. If we optimize the experience, and I go into a rabbit hole of... You know, the chef talking about the meal, which would be fascinating. I would love to watch that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I like the idea of the physical menu. I read the thing. We all put it down, and then the server takes it away, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. They take this thing that might distract us from each other away from us so we can engage. And is that how people actually interact? Not all the time, but if we were intentional about being out for a meal, I would love that we spend time with each other mm-hmm. and I could see us falling into our phones as a function of really good engaging content mm-hmm. about the place we are. And I, I think that would, uh, that, that would be a shame. and um, yeah.
1: So allow me to rebut <laughs> All be- right. because my, my wife, I think it was my wife agrees with you. Mm-hmm. And so we've had a little bit of this conversation. Mm-hmm. So what if instead of the QR code for the menu, they brought you an iPad, and so you had the ability to have some of the more multimedia kind of features. Mm-hmm. But then you're right. They take it away mm-hmm. because you don't necessarily mm. want people looking at the, their phones the entire mail. And so, so you're right. Maybe some guardrails are kind of, of necessary. Yeah. yeah. And so we're now we're going to reverse, reverse, reverse innovation.
0: Reverse, reverse. I think it's just innovation now. Oh, okay. No, actually, what would be really interesting as, as while I was disagreeing with you is also like the immersive experience. Doesn't have to happen in real time, mm-hmm. right? It's actually a great way to get you back in, mm-hmm. and uh, timed text would be very interesting, mm. right? So you you look at the menu via QR code, and mm-hmm. maybe there's a modal or a pop-up that says, "Hey, do you want to do you want to learn more about the chef, etc.?" If you click yes, maybe you drop a number. Maybe it pulls your number, but. An hour and a half after you've left the restaurant, it kind of rebounds or boomerangs some of the content or a little piece that says, hey, next time you're here, watch how Chef Mike Lindsay made this dish. Like That would be a cool kind of um, post-facto experience that would get to a similar place but wouldn't uh, deteriorate the interaction in real time.
1: That's interesting, yeah. So so the thing that that reminds me of is I often will go to concerts – with my wife who's like, oh, we should go see this band. They're great. And mm-hmm. I sort of know them and sort mm-hmm. of know some of their songs. But after I go, I'm always going on their Wikipedia page and then going down rabbit holes yeah. and how they get together and and wanting to know more and, and whatnot. Yeah. It's interesting.
0: Yeah, that's... Uh, I try to Shazam songs in real time at a <laughs> concert, like the songs I don't know. And I'm like, hey, I love this. And uh, Shazam does not does not do well. If, do well I'm well a sound, sound hound yeah. is my version of Shazam. It's funny how Shazam just won. Right, it's Xerox has become the colloquialism of yeah. the the technology, but SoundHound is my app of preference, and uh, it never nails it. So maybe I need to move to Shazam. That's so can we
1: swing back it. to menus one more time? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so we because, can go wherever you want. Well, I'm going back to the reverse innovation. Okay. completely. Because so I think the best restaurant experiences, you know, now we're talking highbrow places, mm-hmm. are the server comes out. And they're telling you about the menu, and they're taking you on a journey through the menu, and kind of narrating what's going on and, yeah. and whatnot. And so there there is a presentation aspect, and mm-hmm. you know that's super expensive to you know have people that are that well trained and, and doing a great job. And you know the, the 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 food is inexpensive, and you have to pay the server a lot. And I, I get that, mm-hmm. but I do think that that personal narrative aspect, which is probably what happened in restaurants before we were printing out paper menus and copiers is that you had to rely on on expertise of servers.
0: I've always been fascinated. Yes. And I've always been fascinated at how they remember all of the ingredients, Mm -hmm. right? Like, because Mm -hmm. it changes by night in some of the high-end spots and that um, demystifying industries is a thing for me Mm -hmm. that is, so in the service industry of which I have never worked and I will take dings on that Mm -hmm. uh, for To the end of time, I'd imagine. Um, Yeah, the like, there's a new special, and it's like this thing with that ingredient. And there's, I'm not even going to pretend to make up ingredients Mm -hmm. for this dish, but Mm -hmm. and it's in this puree and covered in this sauce and like finished with Mm -hmm. that. And I was like, and do you know the rest of the menu? Yeah, and that is incredible.
1: Yeah, and what wine will pair well well with it? And it it is fascinating.
0: Like that expertise. Yeah. I think, for professional servers, mm-hmm. folks who do this and live it and, like, you know, are, are on track to be sommeliers or, or at least understand wine and cocktail concoction. That, for me, is a, an art that I have always appreciated. And then you marry that with um, – because this is about how humans connect for me. It's, it's – you can share the notes and the flavors and how you might experience a meal as a server. Like mm-hmm. you're doing somebody a very real service mm-hmm. to that end. And then I, I remember one of my maybe favorite experiences and introductions to one of my favorite drinks, of which I will take things for as well. So, favorite drink is called the one of them, it's called a calimocho. <laughs> um, and,
1: <laughs> what, okay, what's a calimocho? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ah, ah, okay.
0: All right. So, calimocho is, uh, half Coca-Cola, half wine, oh. half red wine, half red wine, half Coca-Cola um, on ice with a bit of citrus. I, I finish it with a lime, sometimes a lemon or an orange, though, so huh. a splash of citrus. Um, so legend, legend has it, and I'm going to look to Perry to corroborate whether or not, legend has it, this is like a, a pretty standard shift drink, um, or, or some folks, you know, just like cut wine with Coke and, you know, knock it out, back a house. Is that... Yeah. All right, I've got a I've got a skeptical nod from Perry. Um yeah yeah. So legend has it uh festival in Central America in like the 70s. Um, and a bunch of red wine went bad, and they're like, we need something acidic to cut it with, and so they put Coca-Cola in it to like brighten it, sweeten it, give it some pop, and then they finished it with citrus, and like it became a kind of cultural phenomenon. And so I was at a higher-end restaurant here in Richmond, um, and they had this on the menu, and it's uh, Mocho is M-O-X-T-O, I wanna say, and, and so I was like, oh, how do you pronounce this? What is it? I was fascinated. And the server came out, and Rob at Restaurant Adara crushed it. I was asking him about the drink, and he's like, yeah, it's half wine, half coke. You know, it's it's really refreshing. It's kind of a spritzer kind of vibe. Like, it, it, was, it was fun. And when he came back out, I was like, well, what kind of red wine do you make this with? And in this singular moment, I was, I think, endeared to the restaurant because he was just like, oh, I don't know, man. Like, just kind of whatever we have open whatever like whatever wine's been open for a little bit like that's what we use and it wasn't pretentious it was in it, it's a beautiful restaurant and they do a just incredible spread but it wasn't this inaccessible thing and like that mm. accessibility mm. i think is what a server and expertise can bring probably in our industries as well, as as a doctor, being able to be really good at what you do and an expert and also to patients or to students be able to articulate it in a way they can do something. Like that's really the value is having the expertise and being able to make it accessible. Hmm. And I I felt in that moment that's what happened. It was, this is a, you're paying for it, but also, I don't know, man, it's probably just old wine and Coca-Cola. That balance is, that that for me is... uh, True mastery, expertise, plus the ability to articulate and make it accessible—I I like that.
1: Yeah, we think a ton about that in healthcare because you have yeah. people that are that are experts because they they know a lot, mm-hmm. but they become so esoteric in how they know things and understand things that they can't explain them to patients or to learners or, or whatnot. So, so, I definitely see the the yeah. parallel. Um, you know, and, and I. I don't know with Kalimocha if the tohua is important in terms of of how it tastes. I mean, you've drunk more of this. And, yeah, they're
0: they're very good.
1: I <laughs> mean, the last time you and I had drinks together, mm-hmm. we were. I don't remember some, that. I was drinking though. We were on some rocks in the middle of the James River. Oh, I do you remember, remember that. that. Yeah. <laughs> I was drinking,
0: but yeah, yeah, yeah. I was also paddleboarding. Yeah, uh, yeah, that
1: was lovely. Yeah, and
0: you brought tea candles and everything. Well, it was a whole spread, Alan.
1: And and I think you just volunteered to bring the Cali Mocha next time that we we paddleboard.
0: I will. I yeah. will bring a. Uh, I don't know. I'll I'll get a box wine and pull the bag out so it goes into my wet bag. Oh, okay. And uh, and a two liter Coca Cola into my bag and some limes, yeah. and we'll make we'll make a day of it. That'll be. That's going to be one of the more ridiculous things, and we should record an episode of ERR while we're on the rocks.
1: Well, and, and that's saying a lot because you and Scott have done a lot of ridiculous things.
0: That is, yeah, and that would be that'd be up there, not top of the list, but like close to it. That's, uh, yeah.
1: So, can I ask you about your hat? You can't ask me
0: about my hat, uh, which I, I think has come up a couple times and landed in last week's episode as well. The odd job. All right. So, I have an abnormally large head. It's proportional, it, mm-hmm. it fits me, I'd like to think. Uh, but I wear like an eight and a half, nine. And the largest hat one can get in like your standard hat store is typically an eight, is like the largest size. And they get two of them in, I'm at the far, far end of the bell curve, mm. as far as head size, literally and figuratively, I'm gonna take that joke off the table. Um, so the one size fits all hat one one size does not fit all one size fits most and I am not one of the most. Uh, so Oddjob Hat Company is a hat company that makes hats for big heads. Yeah. So they make extra large hats and so if you've seen Oddjob's, uh, it I've got this trucker, I've got a couple like standard ball caps, and then I've got like a five panel. But I've found this brand and they make hats that fit my head, and so uh, my trucker like. I've got two open holes, which is crazy, because mm-hmm. usually I'm like on the last hole to make it as big as possible, and it still like sits high on my head. Uh, so yeah, I found a hat brand that makes a hat that fits my head, and I wear them all the time. Yeah, well,
1: so my my wife and daughter my, both have very large heads, mm. which, which is, my wife is part Irish, and so evidently that's an Irish thing. <laughs> is it's, it really? Well, that's what she says. Huh. So. So I think her whole sort of... I think she's lying family. to you. Well, it's, it's, yeah, all right. Mm-hmm. You know, well, maybe she's just <laughs> saying things to me. So, But but people that have bigger heads oh. are supposed to be more charismatic. Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh. And so a lot of actors have, have large heads and are not very tall. And are so they like,
0: gullible too? Like, am I just believing BS right now? No, no, no. So, no, no. Well... <laughs> maybe. I,
1: I might have believed the BS and now I'm just sharing it. And now we're broadcasting it to the, you know, tens of listeners of Envoy Recorded Radio. There we go. So, all right. Um, but... But yeah, like I think Tom Cruise is supposed to have a very large head, but is only five foot six. For example, you know, a hundred million dollar you know movie per per year per you know Tom Cruise. So this is very exciting for you.
0: There we go. I so I'm one of us is going to have to Google this and uh, and report back next week on whether large heads are actually more charismatic. That might be. There might be truth to that. There might not be truth to that i I, at this point don't know and i have no expertise to to weigh in um okay all right i see a note from you you're you're flying today yeah right you're you're jet setting um i'm grounded this week what so yeah i mean I i don't think i'm like in trouble but i'm just not going anywhere on an airplane um why are boarding groups so unequal in size oh. is a question I have from you. I think that's just a question to which I don't have an answer, but I'm curious about the question.
1: Well, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and I could go on a rant about the airplane boarding process. Ooh, and, Alan rant. I, I love it. You, oh, and no, you guys may have talked about this, but uh, you know, every airline does it differently. Yeah, um, None seem to do it well, but... You know, if you go on certain airlines, they'll have nine boarding groups. And group one will be, you know, a few people, you know, sort of first-classy kind of folks. Fine, Mm -hmm. I get that. They paid extra money. And then they'll call group two and no one will go.
0: And Mm. then group
1: three will be, like, one person. And then group four will suddenly be, like, half the plane comes on. And then, you know, five will be, you know, five people. And then six will be, like, another third of the plane. And so you end up with these sort of surges of people that come through. Mm -hmm. And so I don't understand why they don't sort of even it out and say, okay, you know, the, the groups are going to be similar in size because you end up with these these surges where, like, everyone is, you know, in, say, group four, to use my example, suddenly surging towards the gate and trying to get through. And it, it just seems like a solvable kind of thing. And I, I get there's status and tiering and whatnot, but it seems like they should be able to figure that out on the back end of how many people do we have in this group. And, you know, maybe there's a 4A and a 4B.
0: You would think so, right? Uh, and I think about boarding styles, so blue boards from the back mm-hmm. forward, um, which I have always appreciated. I was hardcore JetBlue kit for a long time, mm-hmm. and then ended up doing work in the Midwest where JetBlue doesn't fly, so like, I, I let go of JetBlue. But the Buffalo, New York, Boston, Richmond corridor, mm-hmm. JetBlue all the way. Boarding from the back made a lot of sense. Southwest and their anarchist ways, just everybody gets on and uses mm-hmm. it wherever. That's insane to me, but it, it works for some people yeah. because of the boarding groups, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're tier one or whatever they call it, you get to pick whatever seat you wanna be in. Um, for the, the rest of the airlines that like properly tier out, I would imagine it's a pricing exercise, like it's economics as much as anything, is if you're in first class, you've either been upgraded, mm-hmm. um, or, you, or you've paid an astronomical amount to be in first class. Um, if you're in the next tier, let's use uh, uh, Delta, if you're in Comfort Plus, you're there because of one, two, maybe three reasons. You you bought a Comfort Plus ticket, mm-hmm. and that is uh, more accessible than the first class ticket. Uh, or you have status. And so because we fly a ton, we don't end up in first because we throw money at the problem. We end up in first because we live on airplanes and mm-hmm. they just know us. Um, but it Often Comfort Plus, like for me, if I book a main ticket right now, I get an automatic upgrade to Comfort Plus. Mm-hmm. And so that second tier you're talking about is probably somewhere in there, a smaller group of people who have status or have bought the the Comfort Plus ticket. Um, and then lastly, the, um, the folks who have – oh, I don't want to say this. Should I be diplomatic or not?
1: Just say it. You can
0: do it. I'm not going to say it. I'm going to move on. Um, no, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the other side of that. There's, I think, the delta between main cabin and first class is so big, but Comfort Plus, airlines are getting really good at nudging you to spend that next 60 to 100 yeah. bucks. Yeah. And once you've spent 500 bucks on a plane ticket, what's 600 bucks on a plane right. ticket? Right. So I think they create that gap in mm-hmm. the middle because mm-hmm. if you're in coach and you're buying a coach mm-hmm. ticket you're a budget flyer price conscientious yeah right yeah and then if you're in first you're less than or you're less price conscientious or you've gotten upgraded yeah and so the you've got the far ends of the spectrum and like who fits in the middle yeah. business travelers and depending on the airline probably a smaller do you do you have a preferred carrier do You fly uh, as probably on? probably Delta most, okay. but yeah. I, mean,
1: I fly whatever's most convenient to get where, where it is. Yeah, I, and I, I think this circles back something that, that you and and the person who should not be named have talked about before, <laughs> is that Lord I would Wayne. <laughs> oh yeah, him. Um, is that if I had my preference, I would be the very last person to get on the plane mm. because I'm in no hurry to get on that plane because you know the, the air will just get a little on and just sit right. And yeah. Just sit. yeah, and actually, um, when I've occasionally flown. First class, just the idea of like getting on the plane and then you sit there for like 20 minutes while everyone else is getting on just drives me nuts because, you know. The, well, you get to drink the, in first the class now, huh? is, Well, that's true, but yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so there, there are some perks. Yeah, <laughs> but There are perks i um, just hammered yeah. by the time the rest of the mere mortals <laughs> so get that's on the plane. Kind of, yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but um, – but I get on as soon as I can now because yeah. I want to get my bag stowed in the yeah. overhead bin. And so it's really – the overhead bins are, are driving this this issue as much as anything. think.
0: They, they really they are. And yeah. that – one would expect that could be managed a little better as mm-hmm. well. And yeah, there for an industry that is supposedly one of it, – it has to be one of the most efficient. Like efficient from a cost standpoint um, – I think the airline industry has been driven to efficiency, and there are some like major, major things that they run into. But mm-hmm. just the the core premise of airline industry is we have to move people around the world, and we have to do that at a price. Kind of Country like the margins are razor thin, yeah, for airlines, and and
1: and, and they operate in chaos because they're right. they have to rely on the weather. I mean, you know, like I would think, yeah, manufacturing is probably more efficient in a, in a sense, yeah, but. But manufacturing, you're really trying to eliminate chaos, whereas, like, with airlines, you know chaos is part of the job. Just mm-hmm. like in healthcare, it, chaos is part of the job.
0: Yeah. 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 Mm. yeah. Okay.
1: I'm going to sit with that. I'm, I have more thoughts on airlines, and we'll, we'll tackle that next time. Well, Actually, actually go so, ahead. So let me mention the other thing about boarding that, yes. that I just – I don't know if this drives me nuts. But um. when they ask people that are in the armed forces to board early, mm-hmm. and I, I'm, you know – for patriotism, and I remember that this started after nine eleven and and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But I always um, wished that there were other groups they might include in that. I don't know how you sort of start to think about that, but you know, why aren't nurses uh, first and first responders there? Single moms, you know, mm-hmm. wh- whatever it is, you know, you know, folks that have have, you know, you know. In a sense, kind of, you know, taken on some of these sort of social duties that that we have, and, mm. and I'm not talking about doctors. I mean, we the, the doctors are going to be fine. Sure. So, yeah. but it's just you know, it's just interesting that we that we valorize that, and and not other groups that are equally, you know, teachers. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, if you're a preschool teacher, get on the plane first, you know, sit wherever you want.
0: Because <laughs> it's when when one boards, it's. Um with Delta, at least, it's people who need extra time getting down the jet bridge, mm-hmm. and so I'd imagine a mom wrangling her kids yeah. could could fit into that group, yeah. but would have to make an active decision to step into that group yeah. uh, of her own volition, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, Elderly folks who, mm-hmm. you know, need to get down yeah. the jet bridge. And then it's active duty or uniform military or active duty. Mm-hmm. And so uh, reserve, in uniform, active yeah. duty, they they get on. Yeah. And, and, well, and
1: the aliens do differently. Some don't do in uniform. Some say any active duty Just any, any active duty and I think military. some even like retirees. Huh. So. Yeah. yeah.
0: It, yeah. So it's – it is fascinating how that uh, – we have always appreciated and – we haven't always celebrated veterans. I'm thinking about times in our history yeah. where that has not been the case, right? Yeah. Um, but we—it's it's a very distinctly post-9/11 thing, yeah. Um, and yeah. that, to me, is—it's fascinating how much has shifted in the airline industry just mm-hmm. in general post-9/11. Like that—that was—that mm-hmm. is one of those things that we just know as default now. But if you remember what it was before, and I didn't—I don't have major recollections of flying the way that I do pre nine eleven. But you know, that's just like you could walk people to the gate and you could just buy a ticket to anywhere and all of the rom coms of the nineties of just like you just you run to the gate with your ticket and you don't actually use it. You just yeah. have the media it's that kind of stuff is fascinating to me. Yeah. And it's a world that I don't know as far as travel goes.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. now I remember being as a kid, you would you would get on the plane and the last, like, five rows were the smoking section, and there were these little silver signs that said smoking sort of past this. Yeah, because so you if,
0: can be insulated from the smoke right. after that seat, right? Yeah, that's yeah.
1: And so as a little kid, I remember walking past those those seats, and all of a sudden it's very smoky as you're walking back to the restroom on the plane. Uh-huh. And I'd be like, oh, look, there's uh-huh. silver signs. That, that's smoking back here. So <laughs> di- bizarre. Di- different times. <laughs> that's yeah. wild.
0: Yeah. All right, let's land this plane. I have, uh, I have two— Two, maybe three rapid fire questions for you. Okay. Um, do you clap when a plane lands?
1: If there's social pressure to clap. <laughs> in, in. I never start the clap. <laughs> but no, don't you do this when you go to like like uh, No, Alan, performances? I don't clap when like, the
0: plane lands. But
1: what if everyone else is clapping? You're like, okay, I'll, I'll clap. And, you know, it's, you know, I mean, there, there are certain things when people will do. I will start the clapping, not yeah. a plane landing. <laughs> so, but yeah. like, you know, a, a great magic trick you know a great you know sports play i'm all for clapping but but if everyone else is clapping i just join the clapping you you don't feel social pressure to clap
0: absolutely do you save your cookie to give it to the pilot for doing his job when you get off the plane is that like after you finish clapping do you hand him
1: the cookie give him a gold star listen when my patients leave the hospital i expect some applause from them (laughs) <laughs> All right. I don't know
0: how you're going to answer this next question. Okay. Uh, do you stand up before the boarding doors are open?
1: Um, I'm generally someone who likes to, to sit until we need to necessarily get up, but I'm now getting old and creaky. So mm. I will stand up because it's sort of the like, oh, I need to like stretch. And then often I'll sit back down. Are, are you, you're not a stand-upper?
0: I think – I think we need to end your RR here because, Alan, you embody everything I hate what? with other people on airplanes. You clap and you stand up before the boarding doors open. But, I might fight you. <laughs> I might have to fight you. I we don't we
1: to... can take this outside. <laughs> <laughs> I could probably hit your big head with my hand.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm Ace Caldwell. I'm Alan Dow. And this has been Envoy Recorded Radio. We will see you next week. Maybe.